Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, if you're like me, you will be instinctively skeptical about any idea that offers to reduce your carbon footprint and make you happier by altering the way you move around your city. You and I suspect ideas like this are bound to fail for two reasons. Firstly, does anyone still fall for the carbon footprint scam? This hackneyed woke trope refers to neither carbon nor a footprint. It refers to carbon dioxide, the invisible odorless gas whose main imprint on the earth is in the plants it feeds, which in turn sustain all life on earth. So you'll forgive me if I hope my carbon footprint, such as it is, is as big as possible. Secondly, only governments can do this kind of thing. And governments are made up of busybodies who are as good at understanding what makes ordinary people happy as Meghan Markle is at humbly deferring to royal protocol. To ordinary people, life is at its best when it's messy and spontaneous. True love, for example, is still, even in the age of dating apps, almost always the result of a random real-life encounter with a relative stranger. If humans didn't crave unplanned adventures, they wouldn't spend large portions of their income traveling to foreign countries and immersing themselves in the unpredictability of a strange place and people. Government bureaucrats, on the other hand, think life is at its best when it's ordered and designed for convenience, which is what brings me to our main topic tonight. It is variously referred to as the 30-minute, the 20-minute, and even the 15-minute city. As I said, people who became skeptical during the COVID lockdowns about the supposed benevolence of bureaucrats and politicians are immediately inclined to scoff at ideas like this one. But let's give the devil his due. There are, in fact, some good aspects to cities where everything is within walking distance. Canadian town planner Brent Tadirian, one of the world's leading experts on the matter, recently described the idea of 15-minute cities like this on ABC Radio National. We've called them many things in city planning in my 31 years. We called them complete communities or just mixed-use communities or just the opposite of suburban sprawl and car dependency. It's sometimes called the city of short distances where everything you need is just a little shorter than in other cities. You feel more connected with your neighborhood. You're more likely to interact with your neighbors. Well, these are true to a point. I'd argue that spacious suburban homes are more conducive to conviviality with neighbors than apartments are. But that aside, let's hear what Tadirian says about the other benefits. Oh, by the way, your carbon footprint's a lot lower, so it's a powerful climate change mitigation tool, unquote. Uh, okay, so we'll have to part ways on that point, Brent, given that climate change is already a Trojan horse to alter people's behavior, not for the sake of the planet, but so an elitist cabal can, can, can control the minions. 
But then Tadarian gets hostile, explaining why his side is losing the debate about 15-minute cities. Quote, We're losing because a lie gets a lot more attention than the rational truth. I'm pushing back in a more aggressive way. I'm calling out the liars. It starts with the suggestion, like everything else, that the conspiracy theorists and the extremists and the QAnons are doing it's always an attack on individual freedom, even if, ironically, it's providing more choice. The lies range from small lies, like they're not going to want you to drive, to big lies, literally using terms like they want to turn your neighbourhood into a concentration camp. He then goes on to equate the anti-15-minute city brigade with those who supported the trucker protests in Canada in 2021, peacefully stormed the Capitol in Washington on January 6, and supported Brexit. Well, when you put it like that, Brent, count me in as a rebel, rebel and dissident. Besides, in Britain, where this 15-minute city idea is really taking off, the fears of the conspiracy theorists are quickly becoming conspiracy reality. Here's a video from Oxford this week showing what looks like vigilantes manning a traffic checkpoint. Hello, Morning. have you got any right to stop here? Uh, uh, yeah, you'll see this is a note for motor vehicles. This is motor yeah, vehicles. do you go to work? Uh, yeah. So Brent, it turns out that they do want to stop you driving. And while we're dividing people along libertarian lines, the proponents of this kind of idea are conspicuously also the types who quite enjoyed the COVID lockdowns and want to use them as a model for future urban planning. Well, let's cross to London to Lawrence Fox, one of Britain's most eloquent and resolute rebels when it comes to government overreach for his take on all this. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. Now, Lawrence, there are two conflicting messages from Oxford reaching us here in Australia at the moment that the town is being locked down permanently by Chinese-like cameras controlling people's movements, and the people are rising up and smashing the cameras. Who's winning this battle? Well, it's happening all over, uh, all over England, these low-traffic neighbourhoods, you know, which are part of the 15-minute city agenda. And they are... Essentially, what's happened is in Oxford, they've installed so far six cameras just turning this onto silent, they've installed six cameras uh, which are limiting people to 100 trips a year uh, out of their 15-minute zone. So you're finding that, you know, all in the name of appeasing the sun monster, but you're finding that um, families who have to drop their kids at school, they're unable to do it without incurring a fine. So um, you've, got, you've got two warring sides. You've got the doomsday cultists who like to get involved in everyone else's business and tell them when they can and can't travel. And then you've got the freedom lovers. And I'd say that the freedom lovers will win. I think they've pushed the Brits too far on this one. We, we, we've been locked down for two years and now we're being locked down again for no reason other than, you know, because doomsday cultists are worried about polar bears and penguins. <laughs> well, there are two aspects to this 15-minute city idea. One is 
that, uh, you know, it's, it's quite nice. It's wonderful, in fact, that you could walk, if you have to, to everything you need in 15 minutes. Um, but the other side, of course, is that someone somewhere will try to enforce it. But, I mean, do you agree that 15-minute cities as a concept are not that bad? Well, I mean, I, I would have to go on the fact that if you wanted to do a 15-minute city, then the first thing you would build is all the infrastructure for the 15-minute city, which would be the local bakery, the local supermarkets, the local uh, amenities and all of this stuff, rather than building the technology to fine you for breaking it. So if, if they want a 15-minute city, then you, you build the amenities first and you don't need the cameras then, do you? But they built the cameras first. And that, to me, shows that it's just another taxation in the name of salvation. Yeah, well, it's getting worse in London, I hear. Sadiq Khan has introduced these ultra-low emission zones. Can you explain to the people of Australia how they work and if they're achieving anything? Yeah, he's, he's, he's such a great guy, Sadiq. We're so lucky to have him as our mayor. Um, he, what he's done is, as he priced people out of living in London, or, you know, well, cities get expensive to live in anyway, so it's not, I can't blame him entirely for that. But he's turned London into a gridlock anyway, so he hates the car. And what he's done is he's gone, well, if you won't get out of your car voluntarily and get onto my unreliable tube service, um, I will tax you out of your car. So all of the poorer people in London who used to live in the centre of London in their, you know, very rich communities have been pushed out and out and out and out the centre into the boroughs, the suburbs. And what Sadiq has done is he's bought, he's now applied this ultra low emission zone to the whole of the Greater London within the M25, the big central ring road. And so essentially it's going to cost you £12.50 a day. I mean, some people are going to be paying an extra £4,000 a year just to get in their car with all of the congestion charges, the ultra-low emission zones. And, you know, he what he does, which is so irritating, is he goes on about how everyone is dying from pollution. But if you just Google the Office of National Statistics, uh, pollution deaths, London, since 2001, how many people do you think died of pollution as a contributing or secondary factor in their, uh, in their passing away? Uh, Uno. <laughs> One. Well. One. Yeah. One. As a contributory factor. So it's all, I think this, you know, it's this endless leftist demand for power and control over other people. And it's really, um, I think people are fed up with it. But, you know, that's, that's what he wants to do. But he's giving it all London school children free school meals, which is nice of him. So um, he Nothing. gets to tax the whole of London. <laughs> London, you, Lawrence, you know there's no such thing as a free lunch. No way. <laughs> We're all paying for these free lunch. Um, and for now, his 300,000... Well, just, just staying on this idea of the 15-minute cities, we don't have any here at the moment, and no one is has yet seriously proposed it. But the closest we have uh, at the moment in Australia are some laws that apply across Victoria, which supposedly dictate town planning ideas to councils. But I've got a theory about it, Lawrence, and that is that bicycle lanes, which are now ubiquitous in all Australian cities, are the tip of the spear, and pretty soon they'll be saying, well, who needs a car? You can ride, just ride your bike everywhere. Is that how it started in Britain? Yes, yes. It's, it's the sort of British version of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, isn't it? You start off with a fishing boat, and you, end, you end up with a, um, with a massive military seaport. Um, yeah, you start off thin end of the wedge, uh, restrict people's liberties via congestion charging and bicycle lanes and stuff like that. But the irony is in London, we've got uh, one of the famous streets, um, what's it called? Palmau, I think, or, or the Mall, which is Palmau. And um, 
it's directly next to Hyde Park, which has a huge cycle lane in it. But Sadiq Khan, has, in all his great wisdom, has decided that he's going to put a cycle lane on Park Lane. So you can't, you literally can't get anywhere in London. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're riding a bike, who knew? Well, let's talk about, let's move on yeah. from town planning and talk about another type of planning in which the government is planning to control our behaviour. The Reserve Bank of Australia is currently conducting a trial of a central bank digital currency. You could almost say it's being done in secret because it's certainly not advertising it loudly. Curiously, this idea wasn't even mentioned during last year's federal election, but bureaucrats, I think, assume we'll just go along with it anyway. Now, so it's, it has to be kind of clandestine in Australia, but your prime minister, Rishi Sunak, he's one of the world's leading proponents of central bank digital currencies. Do you think that people will let him get away with it? I think it's a very sad thing because I don't think people quite realise what the implications of central bank digital currency are in terms of social credit scores and things like that. You know, having your uh, right to spend money removed or incentivised by eating lots of mealworms and stuff like that. Um, yes, Rishi Sunak is, is working on the Brit coin. I don't think there's much we can do to stop it, <clears throat> actually, because, you know, we so many people transact with their phones. And whether we like it or not, I think we're probably heading towards some form of social credit score. Uh, via the the Bitcoin, as he calls it, but yeah. so hopefully people who use cash. Well, it will. It'll actually be a pretty smooth transition because you know the transactions that we do now down at the supermarket on our phones, you know, it, it, it's already a digital currency as it is because you know someone is tracking us already. It's just not the government. The government just wants a piece of the action, really. Yeah, and. Um, Hopefully, I mean, one one can only hope that people do start to use cash, and there there is a sort of a deep black market develops because um, you know it's the, the implications of it are terrifying. You know, imagine what happens when the next so-called pandemic comes and arrives. How easy it'll be to stop people doing anything. Yeah, indeed. Or you know, you drive your car too far into the city, or you buy too much meat, or travel overseas. I mean. I'll just be keeping an eye on you. I mean, it's disappointing that this is all happening under, cons under a Conservative Party in, in Britain. I mean, just like in Australia, the Conservatives, uh, the Conservatives here have really lost their way. I mean, they're, they're not even in power anywhere except for Tasmania. But they're still in power in, in Britain. But are they even Conservative, Lawrence? Not particularly, no. I mean, they, they've started to make a few noises as they um, have tumbled down the polls towards a historic defeat at the next general election, which looks like it'll be next May. Um, so they've started to, to face on immigration and inflation and the economy. But ultimately, I, I think the problem is that the further towards the front benches you get in the Conservative Party in the UK, the more woke and Labour and socialist and collectivist they are. So, you know, there's some good MPs, uh, but they tend to be backbenchers. And I think that within the, the Conservative Party is going to have quite a big identity crisis soon. There, it's very much Conservatives and Labour is, is not a cigarette paper between them, really. Yeah, it's the same here. I, I noticed that uh, the Conservatives there adopted Tony Abbott's famous uh, famous line, stop the boats coming across the channel. But it, they've kind of modified it in the past couple of days. They're actually filling the boats and keeping uh, illegal immigrants on barges in the, in the Thames or something. What's that about? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's impossible to appease the mob in England because, you know, the refugees welcome mob who tend to go refugees welcome, refugees welcome, also tend to be the ones that are on benefits themselves. So the people that actually foot the bill for this are, uh, you know, you, you'll get a, a vast swathe of migrants coming into the UK, economic migrants mainly, uh, which we do need because our demography is so bad. But these guys are being are being put directly next door to, um, you know, communities, very old British communities. And the, the social cohesion problems are, are huge. So, yeah, I think they're just trying to make it unattractive for them to come here. And whatever your, whatever your views on immigration, I don't think we should incentivize people with a free health service and benefits to, to come to the UK. Because otherwise, why don't you stay in the 10 countries you crossed <laughs> to get here in the first place? Yeah, well, for a long time, they were just putting them up in hotels as well, weren't they? 400 hotels, yeah, were totally fully booked with um, with migrants and, you know, all the stuff that comes with that, different cultural norms. It's, it's worrying. Well, it's, you know, it, worrying is, is, the, is the, the least, I mean, th there's no option anymore in Australia and seemingly in Britain for, uh, you know, political choices to conserve our history and our values and our culture. In Australia, we've got parties like One Nation and the United Australia Party and the Lib, Lib Dems, but uh, none of them have a film star as their leader, mate. <laughs> How's the Reclaim Party going, which you lead? Yeah, it's good. I mean, we, we essentially, I try and sort of morph it away from politics because I think what we've got here is a, is a massive cultural problem. And I don't think there's a cultural a political solution to a cultural problem. So I'm trying to to draw, not back from politics, but to, to try and use a, a more of a cultural approach, you know, via stuff that we're doing in terms of the bad law project over critical race theory and all of the stuff that's being taught in schools. And we're doing something called bad education. And I'm, I'm trying to work with sound politicians because having hung out with politicians now for the last three years, they are worse than movie business people. They literally are worse. I mean, and that's saying a lot, having worked in show business for 20 years, the vainest bunch of self-involved beeps ever. Well, yeah, well, it's uh, show business for less attractive people, as they say. Now, just before you go, Kelly J. Keane, as you know, who you know as P Posey Parker, braved some pretty violent trans thugs in Australia recently and in New Zealand. But the interesting thing to me, Lawrence, was that only a handful of Australian politi politicians came out and supported her. It was incredibly disappointing for Australia. I mean, freedom of speech here, even for someone saying something as plain as let women have their own spaces, is almost, it's almost dead. But I'm interested to know, is there much political support for Posey Parker in Britain? No, the, the Conservative Party here they try not to touch culture at all. They're not interested in these issues because they, they are they're landmine issues. But um, it was terrifying to see what happened to Posey. It's uh, also, as I pointed out the other day, it's worth remembering that these people that tried to trample her to death in New Zealand are the ones that want to share bathrooms with women. So, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to have a very broad look at this whole idea of what transgenderism so-called is. Because actually what it is, is it's, uh, it's, be, it's, a, it's a very small minority of people, genuine so-called transgender people, and it's been hijacked and it's been used by the, by the woke movement, which is violent and uh, totally oppressive, hates free speech and wants, power, again, power and control over you. And it's terrifying. But no, I haven't heard much, so much as a peep from um, anyone on the front bench of either party. So there are some good 
MPs who care about this stuff, Miriam Cates, Conservative MP, and Rosie Duffield, the Labour MP. But generally speaking, our politicians, political class, so cowardly, they won't go anywhere near uh, cultural issues or hotbed issues because they, you know, just rather go stick to the middle ground while our country slowly falls apart and freedom of speech ripped apart and women's rights are ripped apart by this misogynistic, vile movement. And, we, you know, you've seen what's happened in America over there in... Uh, in uh, where Tennessee. Is, where is it? Uh, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is... I mean, what happens when you start injecting a woman with a load of testosterone? What happens? I mean, are we witnessing that? The last several mass shootings in America, mass killings have been taking place by people who are, you know, gender gender diverse. You know, it's, it should be very, very worrying for, for all of us, this experimentation on children and young vulnerable people. Well, the other, the other aspect of that that seems to have been forgotten is that these people are seeking solutions to psychological problems that aren't going to be solved by, you know, turning a chunk of skin off your arm into a fake penis or something. I mean, these people are mixed up people with often with sort of anger issues, which is a, a light way of putting it. But, um, you know, they're, they're seeking answers in all the wrong places. I think the takeaway from this conversation, Lawrence, is that the answer is cultural, not political. And uh, we'll be following your work with the Reclaim Party closely, mate. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, mate. All right. That's Lawrence Fox, the Good former one. actor and now leader of the Reclaim Party and one of Britain's most res resolute rebels. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more, including, of course, Alan Jones, by going to adh.tv or downloading our app, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.